Hello and welcome to Improving Scottish Football. My name is Kieran, and first of all, Happy New Year to everyone. Today on the podcast, I've got Graham McDowell, who is the author of the book The System What We Can Learn When Science and Reason Collide with Scottish Football. So today on the podcast, we're going to be having a good look at how we bring young players through in Scotland and asking if clubs actually know how to create pathways for their young players. We're going to be talking about performance schools and whether they're working as best as they could be. And we're also going to be asking why in Scotland there are still no rules for homegrown players. So please do like, share and subscribe and review all that good stuff. It'll really help the podcast grow. Let's keep this going. Let's improve Scottish football. Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the podcast. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Graham McDowell. Graham, how are you? I'm very well, Kieran. Thanks. Yourself? I'm good. Yeah, I'm not bad. Um, can you start out by giving us a quick introduction to yourself, please, and uh, tell us about your connection to Scottish football? Yeah, no problem. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a lecturer in uh, further education and higher education. I pursued a career as a professional golfer. Uh, originally, so became PJ qualified way back in 1995. Tried playing, uh, that didn't work out. Did all everything wrong, really, in that respect. Um, went into coaching, so I was a full time uh, teaching pro for about 10 years, and uh, yeah, kind of got really interested in a, a number of things around skill acquisition and uh, why my own playing career hadn't worked out, and that kind of led me back into academia when I went to university a little bit later on in life and started to specialize in talent identification development and kind of led me to where I am today in terms of football, probably driven by, well, you know, the kind of just own personal interest in, in football and uh, been grown up around dinner tables with fathers and grandfathers and all of these kind of things where uh, they say football was invented to give uh, dads and granddads something, something to talk about. And that was... Uh, <laughs> Certainly the case in our house because we, you know, we talked about very little else. So we'd always come back to come back to football, and then my own son's involvement in football latterly, where I was kind of happy to drop him off and then um, slope into the background, but eventually get pulled to the foreground and you get involved in coaching. Um, so I was involved in that for four or five five years, and you know what came pretty obvious was from my own um, area, if you like, my, my own subject area in the areas I was just talking about was that, you know, parents have got a little bit of an idea of some of these things, but but very often, you know, it's presented in such a way that's not really all that accessible. A lot of the things that are in the book, like maturation and uh, the relative age effect. And so I thought it would be good to try and put some stuff down um, in what I consider to be layman's terms in the book, just because I had access to that particular particular story. Um, so during lockdown, I thought, right, I'll start to, to, you know, sketch this out and it might have some some use in that respect good yeah so your book you've obviously called the book the system so in kind of layman's terms can you explain what the system is for us yeah so the system you know really comes from the term when anybody ever talks about scotland's uh, problems or the problems we've had over the last few decades they always say you need you know we need to look at the system we need to look at it from every element of the system so it was just a kind of phrase that you know, I felt, you know, when you say the system, people typically know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought that would be just a kind of nice um, title for the book. And as the book goes on to uh, lay out that uh, fleshes out two systems, and they're called System 1 and System 2. 
Um, and if I'm, if I'm jumping the gun here, I can just tell me that um, that that was a basic kind of organising structure to the book, and it was looking at the the, the way in which we. Um, you know, we start off everybody's playing grassroots football, and then very, very early we take what we believe to be the best players uh, and put them on the pro youth system trajectory, if you like. Um, and at that point, as young as eight, nine, ten years old, uh, we have this path of separation where the, the perceived best players go one way in system one, pro youth, and they're in that structure uh, potentially forevermore. And then system two, where um, everybody else goes, where they just continue to play with their grassroots. Their grassroots teams and yeah then just looking at the problems inherent in that particular uh, organized organizing structure to the game mm-hmm. and this system one of course in scotland is the performance schools route is that right yeah so i mean you, you can apply to to be in the performance schools from your grassroots club and um, i don't have the i don't have the data on that just yet in terms of how many uh, performance school attendees come from pro youth teams and how many come from grassroots teams. I mean, I would imagine it favours the pro youth um, pathway. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that would be part of the, the the broader thought about system one. You would have your performance schools in there uh, and then you would have the um, the Club Academy Scotland pro youth type setup, which, um, you know, all, all, all the young kids out there playing on a Saturday are trying to get scouted into mm. So the book's kind of split into three sections, the past, present, and the future. So we'll yeah. we'll follow a similar structure for this episode. Um, so let's focus on the past, first of all, and where we've come where we've come from. So yeah. so obviously a few a few things that are quite important to mention. One of them is the environment. Yeah. And you talk in the book quite extensively about kind of street football mm-hmm. and why back in the day why Scotland produced so many you know great players you know playing on things like red ash pitches yeah. conditions that were tougher than the real game yeah I mean you, so, so you're right the book's structured in that that sense and you know I went back and I kind of um, you know found out things I didn't know the further I went back and uh, the more enlightening it, it was for for me in terms of the kind of involvement Scotland had in the game around the world um, you know and you kind of have hear all these stories about founding fathers in Argentina uh, Brazil and South America and all these places, um, and that's fine. I think every every country's got lays some claim to being the founders of football, um, you know, and that that's fine. But what what didn't seem to be under any dispute was um, Scotland's role in pioneering the passing game. Um, and um, I don't know if you've heard the term, or you will have from the book, the Scotch professors. Um, and you know, we became known for this style of football that seemed to. Um, be a way of um, counteracting, uh, you know, more physical teams because t- typically Scots were more diminutive um, in terms of their stature, tended to be kind of smaller. So we developed this fast passing game. Um, and then you take that into uh, the, the 20th century generally and the Scottish players playing for you know, all these teams in England as well as uh, the, the teams in Scotland, all of these kind of things. You start to go back and you look at, well, let's have a look at their upbringing uh, you know, as youths and see what what that was like. And you find these kind of harsh working class conditions. Typically in football, very often was a way out of, of those conditions for people. Um, you know, very organic, very unstructured, uh, very little parent parental involvement as you're coming through that. And as you say, you know, kind of on the on the streets, on these red, red ash pitches in the west of Scotland, uh, which have you ever played on them, then you, you'll remember it because it was brutal. 
mm-hmm. you know, and they used to play with that mitre mold master ball, which uh, didn't lend itself to being punted because it was uh, anything slightly mistimed would literally break your foot. So, you know, you would tend to kind of, uh, you would see more ball carriers, people who would, you know, dribble with the ball or um, protect the ball, use their body weight because you didn't want to fall on the stuff. Um, and this this kind of fitted with a lot of the stuff I'd been reading in terms of uh, skill acquisition around the world and uh, the conditions growing up in the likes of Brazil, you know, where they're playing on um, very playing in very poor conditions on uneven surfaces. Uh, when they get to to a World Cup, you have the likes of Pele describing going to a World Cup uh, as feeling too easy, huh. you know, because they're on this massive pitch, manicured, perfect balls. Uh, everybody's wearing obviously a strip. It just felt easier by comparison to the conditions of their upbringing, mm-hmm. um, and that that seemed to chime really, really true with uh, what what I was kind of seeing when I was looking at the the situation in Scotland, um, you know, and and that that then carries us through, and then things start to change around the turn of the century, um, which I can get into in a, a little bit, but um, yeah, that was the kind of prevailing conditions, and also the the other. Uh, standout feature of the the 20th century was that uh, players were typically coming into pro football later. Okay, um, and and that was a major advantage for the later maturing boys, particularly the less physical ones. Uh, you see all these kind of, you know, I think the, the the Scottish Football Hall of Fame would be a completely diff- have a completely different roster um, if they were using the system of today back then. Yeah, and um, because you've got a lot of players who weren't weren't physically capable of playing in the local grassroots teams, um, at 14, 15, 16. and it wasn't until they caught up physically in the seventeen, uh, seventeen, eighteen years old that um you would see their real ability come through. So their physicality had to cat, uh, had to have enough time to catch up with their uh, technical ability, but the system was structured in such a way that that could happen. Um, you know. It's, Stevie Chalmers scored uh, the winning goal for Celtic in the European Cup. Uh, Cup final. He didn't enter professional football till he was 23. Um, you know, yeah. some of the other legends that I talk about in the game, um, Alex James at Arsenal, he considered to be the Be- Dennis Bergkamp of, of his time, a bona fide superstar at Arsenal, and wasn't wasn't good enough to get into his local football team at 17. Um, you, you know, and, and it's lots of stories like that when contrasted with what we have today uh, starts to build a theory if you like yeah because the performance schools are basically you know they're, they're picking young boys really that you know that talent identification is coming very very early on you know before the boys have matured or grown and so i guess the suggestion is that we're missing a lot of you know potentially you know good or world-class players by not delaying that you know process mm-hmm. until maybe more towards 16 17 is that is that a fair summary? Yeah, it's a fair it's a fair summary that there's certainly you know that would be one of the major inefficiencies in the system, uh, not just in Scotland. You look around the world, um, you know it's been driven by legislation, which I can can get onto. But yeah, that's that's the argument, not necessarily the the performance schools. They're part of the the system, but certainly the pro youth setup where um, you're into your kind of club club academy Scotland. If they're starting to to look at players at um, under 10 you know and i kind of make the point that if you if you want if you want to be good enough if, you, if you're going to be good enough at nine years old to get taken into an elite uh, academy then you've probably been playing with a, a good grassroots team from about six or seven to get into a good grassroots team at six or seven you've probably been quite serious at football since maybe four or five 
Um, and then it just drives this. Well, what, what that does is it drives football away from the working classes because you need uh, uh, you know, a lot of parental involvement. It needs to be driven in the background by somebody to deliver a nine-year-old to a, an elite academy. And uh, there, there's been quite a lot of um, involvement um, in that. And I mean, that's not to, to, to disparage either the any particular class on that side, just, just to say that um, it was more organic in the future. You were chucked out to play football on the street. Mm. Um, uh, probably quite intrinsically enjoyable to do that. Um, you would, um, you know, you would quite, quite quickly amass lots and lots of hours yeah. of, of practice doing something you enjoyed. And it's that old kind of thing. You know, you had to be shouted back in for your tea mm. um, versus nowadays where you need to be pushed out to go and get some fresh air. Yeah. So society has changed, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. And there's definitely, a, a, a you know, a, the commercialization of like kids, Absolutely. of, you know, yeah. kids sport, of, of kids uh, activities. Yeah, which is quite interesting. Um, you know, just to touch a little bit more on on those kind of that environmental aspect. Mm-hmm. Do we think do you think we put too much emphasis on, you know, trying to prevent trying to provide great facilities and kids being able to train on, you know, 4G pitches is is that should that be less of our focus, you know, given the fact that obviously, the, you know, the great footballers of the past, you know, all kind of grew up in poorer kind of mm. environments. And obviously you cite, you know, you cited Brazil as well. That's, yeah. you know, that's, you know, quite famous knowledge that the likes of, you know, Ronaldinho, et cetera, you know, were, were honing their skills in, you know, yeah. in, in basically, um, you know, poverty stricken areas. So that's should right. we, should we be worrying less about facilities? Yeah, I, w- I would say so. Um, you know, I, I don't think uh, there's any doubt about that. But I would say that we do have, you know, a generation of young people coming up who that their expectation is 4G kind of pitches, you know, and um, they're, 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 they're training on them. Even my son now still plays under 20s within the pyramid system somewhere. And um, yeah, if, you know, if they have to pitch up and play somewhere that's not a Astro pitch, it's like, oh, you know, disaster kind of thing. So they're very conditioned into that. Um, yeah, my concern is just with the the kind of stability. These these conditions are obviously almost too stable. There's not enough diversity, um, unpredictability, and all the kind of conditions that we know keep your senses really alert from a skill acquisition point of view. Um, you know, I mentioned in the book Willie Miller got hit by a car playing in the street, and um, you know if that doesn't make you scan, nothing will. Yeah. Um, you know, so we become very much, but you know, we all know that we become we become products of our environment and in, in that sense. And but we're not going to go back to that. I think that's the thing, Kieran, for sure that we're not going to rip up four G pitches and chuck everybody back out onto the uh, onto the street. So we need to come up with creative ways of um, creating that little bit of chaos in the in the learning environment. And you know, contemporary skill acquisition uh, literature and research and whatnot, it's all over that that. that that stuff's already out there in terms of the advocacy for that uh, pretty well established field of um, body of, of work that's been done there. Mm. So let's talk about the performance schools then. Um, this is, I guess, moving on to the the present section uh, of, of the book. And the performance schools was born out of um, the McLeish review, which yeah. um, started in 2010. Is that right? Yeah, the review kind of yeah started twenty ten and about twenty twelve, I think around about then it was the actual rollout. Good. Okay, so give us a little bit of background to the performance schools. Then how did we how did we get there? 
Yeah, so really all kind of, we have to go back to the Bosman ruling, really. I would say that is the, the first genesis of um, the realisation that something's not right in youth football. Okay, and um, so around about the turn of the century, 1999, UEFA um, and the football associations realising something's not not quite right, they, um, they went about piloting their new um, UEFA life, licensing scheme. Um, Scotland were part of that. Um, pilot were one of the first to implement it around about 2004. And what that essentially did is it, in order to get your license, well, first of all, um, you need a license to play European football. Okay, so if you don't have that license, you can't play European football. Um, and one of the key, key criteria was that um, you had to have a, a youth uh, development system in the place, in place all the way from uh, under 10 up to under 21. Okay, so at least four four levels between those two age groups. Um, but I think the significant one in all of that was that um, within a club's legal entity, they must have an under 10 program. So either uh, under 10 teams or um, an under 10 games program. So they couldn't outsource that to a grassroots team. Uh, they, they had to have that within their entity. Um, so, you know, that, that predates the McLeish report. Um, so, so the McLeish report, uh, the Scottish Football Review, didn't put that structure in place. Um, that, that's been imposed on us by, by UEFA. Um, and then fast forward a little bit, you know, we're, we can see that that's not producing, that, that youth football seems to be carrying on um, into, into decline. decline. We, we, we tried various other uh, initiatives that hadn't worked. So Henry McLeish obviously uh, undertook his review. And one of the big things around that, that time was um, I thought about the actual quantity of time that a player needs in order to become good and um, had the kind of 10,000 hour rule, which um, had come from a, a, a piece of research in the 90s um, into musicians in the uh, Berlin Music Academy, but it had been picked up in the main, main, mainstream media by the likes of uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, um, Talent, is over, Talent is Overrated, uh, several books had kind of come out at about the, the, the same time. Uh, and there was a commitment to, right, okay, we need to get our players uh, accumulating these 10,000 hours um, because we know that that is the um, that's the kind of reference point for becoming really good at something. Um, and they've looked around Europe and seen various other places, Barcelona, La, 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 La Masia, sorry, um, had the residential situation where kids would come into the uh, into the academy. They would be residential there. Um, they could get their schooling there. They could get more hours that way, preschool, during school, after school. And therefore, it you know it seemed to be this logical idea to implement that in Scotland, and that's what they that's what they, they, they duly did. I think they um, have around about seven performance schools, something like that. Uh, so there's about two and a half thousand kids in System One, which are on this pro youth trajectory, okay. uh, and a percentage of them will go to the performance schools. Mm. So, is that? too many is that not enough kids what's the what's the chat on on that yeah so i make the argument that it's not enough and uh, that that argument is uh not not that popular project brave wanted to reduce it to about 1500 uh, and 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 that is based on that if we give more to fewer we'll produce better players now there's just no evidence for that that if we focus more resources on fewer players that that's going to and that's going to work. When you when you look around the world, um, any anytime you look around the world and you see, um, you know, talent hotbeds, it's it's typically a large numbers game. 
that it, it, it comes from that. And I, my argument was if we've got 200,000 kids playing football in Scotland currently, um, you know, we're, we're taking an awful gamble by segregating 2,500 and hedging our bets that we've, we've picked up nine and 10 year olds that are going to be, um, you know, elite level 20, 21 year olds. Uh, and therefore just based on, you know, a simple rationale like that, then I was, my argument is we need to try and have as many kids still engaged as possible, like we would have had in the, in the 20th century. The other thing we had in the 20th century, um, you know, if you look back to the sixties and seventies, um, there was twice as, twice as many male born, uh, kids per year. Uh, for most most of that century than there is now, and um, so we've already got a smaller talent pool, um, and a much larger proportion of that talent pool is is also um, would be classified as obese. So there's physical. So you're working with a smaller talent pool anyway. Um, yeah, and my argument would be don't shrink that even further. Try and keep it as open as possible. We don't have a good record of picking a nine year old out and uh, predicting that they're going to be an elite level player, therefore uh, let's stop doing that. Yeah. Let's stop doing that. And identifying talent is not an easy thing to do. No. And it's even harder, presumably when you are picking, you're trying to identify who's going to be a professional footballer when the kid is 13 or 14, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, how on earth are you meant to predict, uh, predict that? And then of course the problem is, you know, if you were to shrink that down to only like 15, picking 1,500 13-year-old kids in Scotland, yeah. if, if your child is a late developer or is maybe more focused on multi-sports or whatever it is, and they don't get into the performance schools, then they are going to be cut out of, you know, the system one, as you put it. Yeah, and then surely it's, right. surely it's then hard for them to actually make it if they've not, if they're not given that opportunity to to follow that system. Yeah, and I think the problem there is that they're not given the equal opportunity um, because then what happens is this this notion of the Matthew effect kicks in where you get the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So so they're able to, the kids that are selected early are able to sustain this advantage purely because they're getting more coaching, probably better coaching, more game time, more practice time. And, and so they retain this sense that they are the best players for for much, much longer. And it becomes harder and harder for somebody to break into that system at 15, 16, 17, um, you know, because developmentally they've lost all of that time. They've maybe lost a bit of motivation um, because it's definitely amongst the chatter, amongst kids. Have you been scouted yet? Or if you've not, but you're 14, you're probably not, it's not going to happen now. 15, it's almost definitely not going to happen. And I can't think of any other walk of life where at 15, you're already having to give up the ghost on something because, um, you know, you've, you've not been brought in. At an earlier age, it's a it's, it's a really hard uh, school that. And uh, like I say, when we go back and look at some of me, I just tweeted recently about Brian McLaren and uh, Steve Archibald. Um, you know, seventeen, eighteen, Archibald's still at Clyde. That comes into Clyde at seventeen or eighteen, and uh, you know, hops to Aberdeen, hops to Tottenham, hops to Phil Maradona's ten shirt at uh, Barcelona. Um, that just the chances of that happening today are just almost almost zero. Um, so does that mean that there's players of that quality out there that are falling through the gaps? Well, my argument is um, very most likely. Mm. Would 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 Andy Robertson fit into that category as well? Yes, yeah, so Andy Robertson would be in in that category, deemed to be a little bit too too small. Um, and he got lucky. 
you know, he, he got lucky because he's able to, at 18, 18 and 19 years old, he's playing first team football now for Queen's Park. Um, you know, and, and that is immeasurably better for his development than playing in a B team in some sort of notional um, reserve league or, or that kind of thing. And I was just kind of looking at some of the players, some of the mainstays of the, the, the Scotland squad. And you look at like some McGlynn, you look at uh, Christie, Armstrong, uh, Robertson, 18 years old, they're all playing first team football lower down. You know, so that, this is a major advantage because they're playing competitive football. It's meaningful. Um, there's punters turning up, paying their money. They've got an expectation that environmentally is very good for them. Mm. Um, rather than coming up in a, you know, one of the the top top academies and playing B level football uh, with very little prospect of breaking into the the, the the first team. Yeah, the whole B team <laughs> situation is obviously a bit of a hot button issue, but I think it just goes to show that actually a lot of clubs still don't know what exactly to do with their young players. Yeah, exactly that. And um, I, I agree the, the B team scenario, from my point of view, looks like, well, we just don't know what to do with these kids. They've, they've reached that point where they've come out of uh, youth football. They're now adults. What are we going to do with them? Okay, we're going to produce this this B team. Now, just imagine if somehow the system, there was a system in place um, that had pushed all those kids down the leagues, okay, so that you, you, all these kind of players that we, we think are top talents are playing in the championship um, at 18, 19. What that then does is it push, pushes some of the lesser players in the championship down a league again. Um, but what you, you do is you have a net gain in your overall standard, okay? So the championship becomes stronger because the best players in the country that are at Celtic Rangers, Hearts, Dundee United um, are playing down the league, that effectively maybe get in trouble for saying this, if you like, notionally becomes your reserve league, if you like, your championship, for want of a better description, a feeder, a feeder league. Um, but we would need policy in place that incentivizes the clubs not to um, stockpile the talent. Okay, that, that, that these guys would be better served playing down uh, competitive football. And as I say, the whole game would be lifted as a result of that. Mm. One thing you say in the book is that although most of McLeish's recommendations um, were taken on board, I believe 97 out of 100, is Some, that Something right? like that, yeah. I hope you're not going to ask me which ones weren't. Because <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, well, I'll tell you, well, I'll tell you one that wasn't, because you do talk about this extensively uh, yes. in the book. So that, Thank you. So, yeah, you know okay. you, yeah, yeah, you will know this one, right. So I'm just going to yeah. read a, I'm going to read a quick sec, uh, section uh, from this. Um so one of the recommendations um, that McLeish stated is that the Scottish FA should reward clubs for providing international players and increasing the proportion of young Scots who have come through the youth system into their first team pools. Incentives should be developed as part of the income distribution process within the game for clubs to, to produce these homegrown first team players. Developing homegrown talent is an important consideration for developing club and country. So this is something obviously that's been, you know, um, discussed yeah. um, amongst various circles for, you know, for some time. But the point remains that we still in Scotland do not have a homegrown player rule or any sort of rule about, you know, under 21 players. Yeah. What's that about? Why, <laughs> why, yeah. why have we still not got something in place? Because England do, right? You know, in England, they I do. think eight out of the 25 in a matchday squad must be homegrown. 
they do. And let me just pick that up there because it, it actually develops a, the scenario I was just talking about in terms of um, where the, the best talent go. So um, England brought it in about 10 years ago. And as a result of that, under 21 players now play twice as many game minutes as they did by comparison back then. Um, but the other thing that is done is it's driven more attention down to the, the players in the championship. So when they're filling those spots, um, very often they're, they're taking players from the championship who've already played and are already first-team players at that level. Uh, they're, they're seen to be better bets than necessarily the players coming through their own academies. Um, you know, you know, so it, it's, it, it's driven that sort of situation. Now, a homegrown player policy in Scotland that did the same thing um, lifts the whole standard because if you're better players that are languishing in B teams in the Premiership, um, logically can see that it's better to be a first-team player in the, the Championship. It, ra it raises the standard across the board. And as I was saying, um, you know, maybe some of the lesser players in the Championship go down a level and everybody just shunts down a level. But as a result of shutting down a level, the overall standard's been raised, okay? Because then these players then uh, come back, hopefully get signed by the, 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 the top teams. It keeps the um, income in the country, okay? So they, they're getting reimbursed for that. Um, but it all stems from policy, um, from a homegrown player policy that we just don't have in this country based around some sort of rationale that, you know, it's going to make us less com competitive um, in, in these kind of ideas and I mentioned in the book just on the homegrown player policy so you've got that in England um, Greg Greg Dyke wanted to go to 12 or 13 homegrown players um, and, it, and it was and it was kicked out uh, because um, they still want the marquee signings and it's it, that's they felt it would undermine the appeal of the league now had he got his way on that all you would have is a greater volume of top class English players who I mean it just seems to go hand in hand Um so if, if, if your national authorities won't put policy in place, it's up to the clubs themselves to decide if they, if they want to pivot their strategy and go to that policy. And there, there's probably only one unicorn club, if you like, uh, in Europe, and that's Athletic Bilbao, um, who have a Basque-only signing policy. Uh, and that, that means 85% of the players have to come through their academy. The other 15% have to have a Basque connection. Okay, now they're one of three clubs that have never been relegated from La Liga. Um, have won the Copa del Rey. Um, they've won a European trophy. They've got a, they've got millions in the bank, a couple of hundred million euros in the bank, and they've got another couple of hundred million worth of assets on the, on the pitch. And as I make the point in the book, they select from a region the same size as the central belt in Scotland. Okay, so it is possible. Uh, and not only that, they're not the only professional team in that region. You, you've got Real Sociedad. Um, they they operate a, a similar policy where they like the first team to be um, sixty percent academy based, um, and they're doing very well with that. And there's another professional team that escapes me, uh, could be Alves or something like that. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, so the home game, as far as far as I can see, um, you know, we can talk about coaching, we can talk about performance schools, um, but it, this has to be a top down uh, approach. We need to we need to fix the top for it to filter all the way down through the game um, and I think fix a lot of ills. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of fans would like to see some sort of um, some sort of policy in place. But yeah, I am I am amazed that no club has taken ownership of their own strategy on this. Mm. Um, I mean, that's an amazing um, example that you cite, obviously, about Atletico uh, Bilbao. And 
I'm just amazed that no, you know, decent sized Scottish club has either taken that as a policy. Um, oh, I mean, maybe not just to be exclusively Scotland. Yeah, but, no, no. But I'm surprised no club's been like, we are going to make ourselves the most attractive place for young Scottish players to come and play and you'll get first team experience. Because you would think it would just give them such a great selling point to the best young talent. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. And it is a bit worrying. I mean, when you look at the stats on the amount of, I mean, because these come out all the time because they are so bad. Yeah. But <laughs> just the amount of pl Scottish players, you know, actually playing in the Premiership is appalling. It's it's so low. I mean, obviously, some clubs are better than others, of course. I think Motherwell, yeah, yeah. Motherwell might be the best at the moment. Yeah, they, they, they're up there. Yeah, but I think it's something like five or six. At the top end. At the top end. So, yeah. Yeah, and then it goes down to, I mean, if you look at like the League Cup final, for example, between Rangers and Aberdeen, um, that was, I think there was two Scottish players in the starting 11. Two out of 22. And I think, I think they were both from Aberdeen. But, I mean, even two out of your 11 is surely, surely too low. Um, so you would like to see some sort of policy come in from you know, kind of SBFL level to yeah. to dictate that. Do you think eight out of 25 is a kind of good, you know, benchmark? Yeah. I mean, it would have to be phased in, I think. I think it would have to be a policy decision to do the best thing uh, for, for the young people, for the nation, because we're going to produce better football players, to put self-interest to one side, mm. uh, to realise that, you know, there's, there's going to be a, a transitional period. Um, I mean, I just genuinely don't see any other any other fix to this. I really don't. And uh, you know, we we look at like you say the, the starting lineups and the in the Premiership at the top end, you'll get five five homegrown players out of eleven. But by the time you go down to Aberdeen, Celtic, Rangers, you know, you've got a couple typically two two players starting. Um, you know, and like I say, Bosman changed changed all of that because we were able to quite quickly buy in foreign players that were deemed to be the finished article. But the clubs only stand to win because if you play players, then the value just goes up. And then eventually, if you get down to producing better players, then the value goes up again. But it all stems on playing these players that you're you're actually already spending money on in terms of their development. So it's it's a win-win. And like I say, if, if then there becomes a more um, a clearer pathway from the championship, that it's actually a really good place to go and play and become a player, um, then money stays within the game because the money gets driven down uh, down the leagues. So everybody starts to gain and we can get some better investment and rather than all this money that's about to go out the country again, probably in January in the transfer market. So just before I kind of uh, move on to the, the future element mm -hmm. of, um, of the story, I just want to just quickly touch upon performance schools once more. Are they... Are they a good thing? <laughs> there you go. There's a big question for you. Um, because obviously they are producing some good talent, mm. you know, the likes of Billy Gilmore, for example, uh, coming through. Um, or are they doing more harm than good? What's your what's your general thoughts on them? Yeah, I don't think they're they're doing more harm than, than good, that's for sure. I would like the reach to be bigger. I would like more kids to be able to come in. I think that would be my thing. I mean, as I say, I'm not quite sure of the numbers, but I, I know um you know, roughly speaking, so I would like that to come in. But again, these these players need an outlet, and that feeds back in up up the kind of up the system. So no, I think on by and large that 
and they potentially are a force for the good. They, they, they could be doing good things, um, you know, and Celtic um, and Rangers, certainly Celtic have had their own kind of school link for a lot of years at St. Ninians and they've brought through players and under United at St. John's and they've brought through players. Um, you know, so that it, it, it makes sense on the face of it. If you can go to school and play more football, um, then great. I mean, what I would like, though, is I would like more interconnection. But I would I would like the, the two systems. If we need to carry on with a system one and a system two, I would like more interconnection between them. So it wasn't this kind of path of separation and, and never the, shall the two meet again. Um, you know, and I would give the example of uh, my, my sport was golf and I was never part of the elite national setup, but there was one. Okay, but I was able to play in the same tournaments as all the kids that were in the elite setup. So I could turn up at a Scottish Boys, and if I was good enough, I might beat one of the guys. Um, and all of a sudden, you're on the radar because uh, the systems were interconnected. Um, but we have this um, separate situation where you're plucked out of your grassroots team at a very young age, and you're you know you're taken off in that direction, and then you you play best v best. And you know what you hear time and time is the, the kids get pretty used to playing against the same players because the, the the pools are pretty small once you start to, to look at the different um, le- the elite level, the performance level, the advanced level. So there's a lot, a fair bit of familiarity there that, that, that creeps in and potentially the same at a performance school. You're going to be playing, you know, relatively speaking with players you know. So the, the, the big thing I would like is somehow interconnecting the two systems so we keep more players in the system for longer and um, and there's there's more entry points into the pathway. Um, it doesn't have to be this kind of this very narrow window of opportunity to get into the to the system at a very young age. And so, moving into the future, then um, mm-hmm. this is where you kind of lay out some of the solutions. So, so you just talked a little bit about that. But in terms of kind of leveling the the pay the leveling the playing field, yeah, you also talk about kind of bio banding. Mm-hmm. Um, and this idea about just delaying that talent identification. Yeah. Talk to De- me a little bit about that. Yeah, so try to d- delay selection, although we would have to still comply with the UFR regulation. So we would need to have, we would need to have, still have something in place at the various age groups, but we would just need to be more innovative about how we execute that. Okay, so it doesn't have to be a, um, a situation where, you know, I could, kids are brought in at a young age and um, that's it. There, there's no sort of um, uh, connection between the two the two systems. So I would like to see some innovative solutions around that um, for sure. And then the bio-banding uh, aspect of things comes from the, I think the, the SFA are working with Professor Sean Cumming, um, who's pioneered most of that, uh, another Scott, in terms of the um, biological maturation and trying to put kids playing together who are of a, a similar biological age mm-hmm. okay rather than chronological age where there can be up to six years of difference so um when you're when you watch a game of football on a saturday you, you could be watching an, an under 10 playing against an under 16 uh, and and yet they're both 12 years old now that that's a hell of a difference mm. that's a hell of a difference and we know which one's going to be selected from that group and they're going to stand out, and you wouldn't even need to know anything about football to turn up at that pitch to select the best twelve-year-old. And that's the situation because uh, it's the kind of screaming talent because of the um, biological gifts that they've been dealt at an early age. Yeah. But the other kid's going to catch up, but they're, they're, they're going to be out the system before anybody cares. Well, exactly. That that's it. You know, some yeah. ki- some kids develop later than others. 
And yeah. inevitably, people who are, you know, who are making these selections will be, you know, will be either subconsciously or consciously biased yeah. to picking up, you know, more physical players, more mature, developed players. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, um, so I, yeah, I, I can see, I can see the argument definitely for, for delaying selection. And another thing you mentioned in the book as well is about the fact that world-class athletes, you know, if you're talking like proper elite mm. in world, you know, not just in football, in every sport, yeah, the world-class athletes do multi-sports and don't just specialize in football or one specific sport. And this actually came up in a conversation I had with Ian Cole from Croatia. Yeah. And he was saying that all the kids there play a multitude of different sports. They, they they do everything. They play like five or six sports each. They do not focus just on football until like when until they're like 16, 17. They are encouraged yeah. to do as many different sports as, as possible. And of course, if you're doing multi-sports, then it's quite likely that at the age of 13, you aren't going to be the best footballer at your age group. But by the time you get to 16, 17, all those other skills that you've learned in other sports will probably start kicking in. And that is when you will start to make proper strides in football. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, a bunch of other things, you're less likely to be injured because you've you know, not repetitively been, been playing the same sport. So you've got a, you know, a lot more diversity there. Um, your motivation, you've not had to carry the pressure of being selected as being, you know, special or elite at nine or 10 years old. And, you now have to carry that for ten years with everybody's expectations, and um, you know you can develop more at your own at your own pace. Um, yeah, and just as you kind of laid out there, Kieran, that if you want to be the the, the best sixteen year old in the in the, the country, then you you probably did pursue a single sport at nine or ten years old. Um, so the, the the best junior players specialize early, but the the real great uh, senior uh, competitors across many different sports come into it a lot later um and, and what's basically happening there if you imagine you're as, as a nine-year-old and you're developing and you're getting better and better and better then you start to plateau out at 16 or 17 years old and that's not a great great thing because you need to, to keep get you keep getting better until you're 20 21 and you're a fully grown uh, fully grown adult where the player who's come in and they've they've, they've got all the physical capabilities and, and more because they've been playing other sports they start they, they have to start specializing as well at some some point but now they're specialising at 16 and they're still on an upward trajectory at 20 and 21 as they reach into the adult game. Um, you know, so the, the evidence would seem to be pretty clear on that. Of course, that's completely overrided if your system doesn't allow that to happen. Mm. And your system, if your system says, well, actually, you know, we've set up this in such a way that the 15 and 16 year old can't really get in at that point because they're going to look so far behind the 16 year old that's been selected for Scotland under 17s. Yep. Um, and then, you know, I've kind of put some data out there on, on, on that about the likelihood of you, you going on to be a future senior internationalist. If you play under underage football, it's, it's, it's pretty striking, mm. you know, in terms of that, just not really happening. Um, I highlighted the, the Scotland under 17 that got to the semi-final of the 2014 Euros. Um, so, you know, all 15 and 16-year-olds, they get to the semi-finals, they get knocked out by Holland. This is in 2014. Not one of them have gone on to get a senior cap. 
wow. as yet. Wow. You know, and that just highlights that point because they're kind of plateaued out or, you know, and I, or, or the other issues that we've talked about that try to break into first-team football. So there's a lot of inefficiencies in the in the system, that's for sure, that's not helping. Do you think we need a new McLeish review? Um, not necessarily by him, but do we, uh-huh. do we need, um, is it time to take stock and, and revisit a lot of, you know, where we've got so far and maybe reassess what needs to happen? Yeah, it was, that would appear to be uh, a, a good idea. I'm not sure if there is some work. You might know better than me. Is if there's some sort of groups together at the moment that are, that are looking at various things? I'm not aware of it, but um, yeah, I think I think we really are. I think we really are, and um, we're looking at the standard of football. And um, you know, Derek Adams recently talked about um, how how disappointed he's been since he came back, and looking at the football and the quality of it and all that. And that was in the heat of the moment. But I do know high-profile people who are saying the same things privately, that it's getting worse year on year. And that comes from a lot of other areas as well, just the pressure that's on managers, um, all of these kind of things. Um, so, yeah, we're needing, to, we're needing to take stock again, I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, listen, Graham, I've thoroughly enjoyed this chat. Um, but before I let you go, uh, I'm going to ask you the question I ask every guest, which is, yeah. if you had a magic wand and you could change one thing about Scottish football, what would it be? Okay, I don't think it's going to come as any great surprise, but uh, I, I would bring in a homegrown p- player policy, without a doubt. Um, you know, Straight away, for all the reasons we've talked about, um, it, it changes the face of the game, it changes the economics of the game, changes our playing start standard. Um, like I say, I, I think what, what, what would happen from there is that some of the better players that are uh, deemed to be the cream of the crop that are getting stockpiled at the top, then it would be more logical for them to, to go down and play at lower levels to get really kind of, you know, blooded in first-team football. Um, and that would, I believe, raise the standard and keep more money in the game. So that would be my magic wand moment. Good, yeah. Fully endorsed. Um, is there anything else that you want to talk about or raise that I've not covered, Graham? Yeah, I think we've covered um, a, a good a good range of that. There's nothing really jumping out at me. I think we are in a situation, and I and I tried to make this point in the the book. And you know, I've not really been critical of anybody who's working in the system. Um, been it's really about looking more at the system itself. You know, and I realise um, you know there's a lot of people out there that want to. Uh, get a big stick and beat the coaches with it and say that the standard of coaching is rubbish and all of that. And uh, I've had no personal evidence of that. Um, And uh, my understanding is that by and large, everybody's working within the constraints of the system that's been given to them. Um, You know, so at some point, perhaps we do need to to get down onto the ground and do a review of that side of things to be able to make a, you know, a more evidence-based statement on the, what, you know how, how good the coaching is or it isn't um but no not really as i say it was really just to try and look at the system as an outsider um you know with somebody who doesn't really have any skin in the game and and just say this is this is a hopefully a, a good starting point yeah and i think that's really important and that's something i'm trying to do on this podcast as well is get voices that are not you know mm-hmm. too involved it is it is really important to take objective look, looks at things as well because you know football is such an emotional uh, game and we get so caught up in it and actually mm. you, you do you do need um you know uh, a healthy objective perspective to really make the right calls um 
Graham, where can people get your book? Okay, so it's the usual places. It's on Amazon. Uh, you can find it there. It's uh, it's in a good number of, of Waterstone, Waterstone stores across the, the nation. And uh, yeah, just where you, wherever you normally get your books. I think it's available on WH Smith online as well and these kind of places. So it should be quite easy to find. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Graham. Really appreciate thank it. You. And big thank you to everyone who was listening. Thanks, Gideon. Appreciate it. This podcast was produced by Edinburgh Documentary Films which is a film and media company co-founded by me, Kieran Hennigan. So we make documentaries for TV and cinema, but we also work with companies and brands to help them tell their stories in impactful and meaningful ways. You can find out more at edinburghdocs.co.uk and please contact me directly if you'd like to talk about any potential projects. <laughs>